and what it is that, that you wanted to say to us. And may we take it to heart and live by it. And we'll ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's open our Bibles to First Timothy. First Timothy, chapter 1. Paul writes this first letter to Timothy shortly after he is released from his first imprisonment. Uh, the, the book of Acts ends with this first imprisonment. So after Paul is released, and most all New Testament scholars understand that he was, probably in around the year 62. He probably entered prison in about 60, stayed from 60 to 62. At that time, when he, in his first imprisonment in Rome, he was under house arrest. Uh, the people could come and go and, and minister to him, and he was able to actually evangelize many. Uh, and there was a period of time between about 62 and, and around 67 that Paul apparently traveled freely. We don't know all the places that he went. Some people think he went to Spain. We're not sure that he got there. But, but at least one of the places that we know that he went was Ephesus. Because he tells Timothy to remain at Ephesus as he moves on to another place in Macedonia. We also think he probably went to Crete. But outside of that, everything else is, is pure speculation. So he writes this letter to Timothy, who is not functioning so much as an elder or a pastor in Ephesus, but as Paul's apostolic representative there. So, so Timothy had authority over many different churches, or however many house churches there were in Ephesus. And Paul is writing to Timothy to tell this church, to, to help him to teach this church how they're to behave in the household of God. Now, Timothy gets a bad rap sometime. We've discussed this uh, even recently. That Timothy has the rap for being wimpy or, or uh, uh, cowardly and, and, uh, and so forth. And that's a bad rap. That's a very unfair rap. For Timothy, it was one of the most fav- faithful minister- members of the Apostle Paul's ministry team. Yes, he needed encouragement. And yes, he will get it both in the first and second letter that Paul sends to Timothy. This one probably written about 63 the last one being Paul's last words, written closer to 67, maybe early 68. But in this letter, yes, Paul uh, encourages Timothy. But who among us have not needed encouragement before? And Timothy was much younger than the Apostle Paul. People in, in Ephesus were apparently looking down upon him because of his youth. And Timothy needed a word of encouragement. And in this letter, Paul begins by, uh, by in verse 3, by saying these words, As I urge you upon my departure for Macedonia, remain at Ephesus in order that you may teach certain men not to teach strange doctrines. Now, if you were with us last week, you see Paul's going to, Paul's going to tell Timothy what not to do, and then he's going to tell him what to do, and then he's going to expand again upon what not to do. And now, we, we did half of the second what not to do last week, and we'll pick up the rest of it this week. The first what not to do... Is, is not to allow some of these teachers who we understand as elders in these individual churches in Ephesus, not to allow them to teach strange doctrines. Nor, and I think this is an amplification on what was found in verse 3, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies, which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. Paul is telling Timothy, do not allow these men to major in the minors. Do not allow these men to take something that was never intended to be blown up and, and expanded and way, past, way past what God ever intended in terms of meaning and then, then create fights and factions and schisms because of that. There are things that are trivialities and sometimes believers major in those. 
If you'll allow me, I'd like to go back to a, to a generation that's a couple of generations ago. I think perhaps we can have more objectivity with regard to this, because we need it. Uh, a few generations ago, perhaps in the early 1900s, if I understand Lewis Perry Chafer and his early ministry, one of the discussions that theologians actually fought over was how many angels could dance on the head of a pin. Yeah, right. Oh, gosh. Why, why, did, why would they bother with that? Why would you have church splits over that? We look back at that and we say how incredibly silly that is. Now, if you want to have a discussion about salvation, if you want to have a discussion about the essence of God, uh, the, the Christian life, how, restoration to fellowship, something that matters, then let's do it. But not how many angels can dance on the head of a pen. Not did Paul, not, we're not going to have an argument in this church over whether Paul started his second missionary journey in 49 or 50. I don't care whether he left in the fall of 49 or the spring of 50. It does nothing for anyone's spiritual life. So when I say that we're not going to argue about trivialities, that's what I'm speaking about. Of course, all Scripture is God-breathed, and it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. I understand that. I would trust that you would understand that I understand that. But what I'm doing tonight is teaching, teaching you what Paul taught Timothy to teach those men in, Eph in, in Ephesus. And this is not just descriptive, it's prescriptive as well. And that is that we're not to pay attention and argue and fight over trivial things, like myths and endless genealogies. Now, I alluded to it last time, we'll expand upon it this time. Apparently these myths and endless genealogies were abusive teachings from the Mosaic Law. And by, by abusive, I mean taking the, the, the Mosaic Law out of its context. We'll talk about that a little bit tonight. What was the context of Mosaic Law? What was its purpose? And it wasn't for people to argue about myths and English genealogies. Now, which give rise to mere speculation, rathering than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. So rather than, than promoting the plan of God, these things actually hurt it. Yes, certain theological discussions can hurt the, the furtherance of the administration of God, which is by faith, if they are majoring on minors. And we should be very careful about that. Now, that's how not to do it. At least that's the introduction of how not to do it. Then Paul gives one of the sweetest sentences in all of Scripture, and he tells us how we are to do it. But, now this is a contrast from the, the previous sentence. This is contrasting arguing over myths and endless genealogies, which give rise to mere speculation. So if that's not the way that you would do it, then Paul, how do you do it? What should we be striving for? Paul says, but, a contrast, but the goal of our instruction. The, goal, the word goal there is telos, T-E-L-O-S. It's similar to... Uh, it's similar to the word that Jesus said on the cross, uh, one of the last words that he said, tetelestai, from a Greek word teleo. This is a noun form. Tetelestai is, is translated, it is perfected, it is finished, it's over with. Well, the word telos means something that's, that's being shot for. It's, it's a goal, it's a purpose that's out there. So rather than endless myths and genealogies as, as a goal, Rather than arguing over trivialities, how many angels can dance on the head of a pen as a goal, Paul says there's a different goal that we should have with regard to our teaching. And that goal is love. Sometimes we, we use the word love so much that we, uh, other words as well, but that we become numb to their, their beauty and their impact and their importance. Jesus said, if you love me, You'll keep my commandments. 
if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. But I would propose to you that you can't love him until you know him. First, you can't love him at all until you've exercised faith in him, faith alone in Christ alone, and received eternal life. Right before our, our, our time started together tonight, I was talking to a, a dear, dear friend on the phone who was very, very troubled. And troubled about a variety of things. She, she didn't believe in the Trinity, yet she believed in tongues and the gifts of the Holy Spirit. That's a, that's a challenge as to how one could do that. She was upset that, that we would baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. She was of that group that thinks she should only baptize in the name of Jesus, that Jesus and the Father were one. And I said, you know what, let's, let's cut through all that right now. I want to know something. Have you ever personally trusted the Lord Jesus Christ to forgive your sins and to grant you eternal life? That's what I want to know. Have you ever personally done that? And she says, well, you know what? I've repented of my sins. I have been baptized, and I've received the Holy Spirit. And I said, that's not what I ask you. And I say this to you in love. That's not what I ask you. I said, have you ever at a moment in time personally trusted Jesus Christ to forgive your sins and to grant you eternal life? And she said, and I love her, she said, I don't know what you're talking about. I wonder how many people are out there that are just that way. She's repented of her sins. She's been water baptized in the name of Jesus, not the Father and Son, but that's irrelevant at this point. And, um, and she's received the Holy Spirit. In other words, she's spoken in tongues. And that, that's what she's counting on for her salvation. And she wonders why she has a problem with faith and understanding Jesus and loving Jesus. I said, maybe you don't know him yet. You see, the first, the first step is to trust him, to exercise faith alone in Christ alone. Without that, all the rest of this is meaningless. Now, I, I trust that you have, but maybe her pastor has trusted that she has as well. We talked about it. I don't know if, if she did or not by the time we were through the conversation, but we're going to meet again, and, and I think that this will, uh, this will work out well. But you can't, you can't even begin to love God until you know something about him. What Paul says is the goal of our instruction is that kind of love. The things that I teach you, I want you to know more about God so that you love him more, and then you obey him more faithfully. That's, that's the sequence. You have to know that knowing leads to love, and the love leads to obedience. And if it's not working that way, something's wrong. Paul even puts some modifiers on this. He says that the goal of our instruction or our teaching or our commandments is love from a pure heart. Now, this word pure heart is, is worthy of just a moment. It, it means a cleansed heart. Similar to the terminology that's used in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The word heart here contextually doesn't mean the physiological heart. It doesn't mean the seat of the emotions. It means the entire person. So this, this is a person, if, if we're going to exercise love, we have to be walking in fellowship with God. We have to have a cleansed heart, but also a good conscience. God gave us a conscience for a reason. He gave us a conscience so we would never feel comfortable with our sin. Now, some people can try to suppress that. They can do it with drugs, they can do it with alcohol, they can do it with mind games. Um, but they've got, to, they've got to willfully suppress the conscience. And once they quit willfully suppressing it, then, then it bounces up like a beach ball to convict. So it's from a, a clean heart, from a good conscience, and then from a sincere faith. And that word for sincerity there, or sincere faith, is, is literally unhypocritical. In other words, practicing what you preach. This is what you say you believe. And you need to act it out. No one does it consistently. That's no reason, that's no reason to brag about our failures. And God, but again, God knows we don't do it consistently. And he's made provision for us when we don't to be restored to fellowship. But those, that's the way we should do it. 
rather than arguing over, endless, um, over myths and endless genealogies, which lead nowhere, and that's what they were arguing about in Paul's day, well, you'd have to fill in your own blanks today. And that doesn't go, along, doesn't go around here very much, go on here very much, so I don't have a specific illustration I could give you. I don't really want to anyway, because I'd rather you be objective rather than subjective. But we're not going to argue over trivialities. On the other hand, we're going to teach sound doctrine, sound theology from the scriptures, which leads you to love God more and obey God more because of that love from a clean heart, from a good conscience, from a sincere, unhypocritical faith. And, and that, the outcome of that will glorify God. Now, in verse 6, we saw again the not to, how not to do it part. And we're going we're gonna to get some momentum now and go all the way through verses uh, verse 6 through 11 tonight, we, we mentioned this last time, for some men straying from these things. What are the things they're straying from? Teaching sound doctrine, which leads to love and Christian maturity. They've strayed from these things and have turned aside to fruitless discussion. Uh, fr- fruitless discussion is discussion that doesn't go anywhere, that doesn't benefit anyone. It might be interesting, but when you get up from the table, you think, why did we just spend an hour arguing over that? Why did I lose a friend over that? Why did I let my marriage break up over that? I've heard of that happening. We should be very careful what we spend time arguing about. And before you begin the argument, you need to ask yourself, is it worth it? Is it going to matter tomorrow? Is it going to matter in May? Is it going to matter in eternity? And there are some things that won't. You have to make that decision yourself as well. Now, in verse 7, we introduced this last time, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. Now, here's where we begin our, the new part tonight. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, realizing the fact that the law is not made for a righteous man, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners and the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, or for murderers and immoral men, homosexuals, kidnappers, liars and perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. That's quite a list. (laughs) That, my friend, is quite a list. Paul has brought up now in verses 7 and following the, the idea of the law. And, of course, the law here that he's speaking of is the Mosaic Law. And before we get into the specifics of this passage, which actually won't take that long, it's, it's fairly straightforward. I'm not, I don't intend to do an exposition of every single one of those sins. I think most of them are pretty self-explanatory. We can get that. But I'd like tonight to give you the purpose of the Mosaic Law. Or, rather, if I was to be more specific, uh, ten purposes for the Mosaic Law that one of my mentors, J. Dwight Pentecost, has identified. I, you notice on the sheet that I passed out to you, I footnoted him. I didn't footnote a particular publication because this has appeared in books that he's written. It's appeared in class notes. And it's, uh, it's appeared in journal article, articles and BIPSAC as far back as the 70s. And so I just want to, I want to give credit where credit is due. Dr. P. is the one that has identified these. I don't want you to think that I uh, dug this out myself, although... Most of us stand on the shoulders of those who have gone before us, and I do that unapologetically. But as the scriptures are studied, and and if we go through a study about not just uh, Hebrew Bible, but Greek Bible, New Testament as well, then there there are a number of reasons that have been brought forth for why the Mosaic Law was given to the nation Israel. You have it on your sheet, so I'd like to move relatively quickly through this. I've given you the ten, but please listen along. If you want to take a note or two, that would be perfectly fine. But the first reason that the Mosaic Law was given, and maybe the primary reason that the Mosaic Law was given, was to reveal the holiness of God. 
the fact that God was a holy God was made very clear to Israel in the law of Moses. And again, it, it might have been the primary factor of the law to reveal that God is a holy God and to make Israel aware of the character of the God who redeemed them from Egypt. Think back to our discussion just a few moments ago about the right way to do things. God wanted them to be aware of his character. For if they're, the more they're aware of his character, the more they're going to love him. Who wouldn't want to love a holy God? But yet, if it was an unholy God, then, then our love for him would, would be diminished, would it not? You see, all the other gods, and the gods with a little g, I'm talking about false gods that their neighbors worshipped, they, they had some character flaws. They had to have babies sacrificed to them in order to be placated. There was incredible sexual immorality that was part of that. In fact, in the Greek and Roman gods, they, they participated in sexual immorality themselves. But I suppose the Greeks and Romans kind of thought that they had it coming to them, so they, they didn't look down on it. But how can you love a god like Zeus? How can you love a god like Molech, who's only satisfied by the, the burning of, a, of an innocent baby? But you can love a holy god. And so one of the primary purposes was to reveal that holy God. All the requirements laid upon the nation Israel were in light of the holy character of God as revealed in the Mosaic Law. God is perfectly holy. That's why there was a cross. That's why God couldn't just say, like we, when we were kids, Ollie, Ollie, all come free. You know, I, I've changed my mind. I'm going to let you all in. He can't do that. That's why there was a cross. That's why someone had to pay the penalty. That's why they took that lamb, ritched its head back, and sliced its throat in front of everybody with the blood gushing out so that we would see how holy God was and, and, what, and how sinful sin is and how much it offended him. That's part of the Mosaic Law. Very visual. Quite a teaching aid, I would think. Second, the Mosaic Law was given to reveal or expose the sinfulness of man. It's of this that Paul writes in Galatians 3.19 when he said, It is the law, if the law, it, the law was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise was made and it was ordained by angels in the hands of a mediator. But the scripture hath concluded all are under sin, that the promise by faith of Christ Jesus might be given to them that believe. Everyone is sinful. All of us. Before we came to Christ, we were all equally as guilty. Yes. You were equally as guilty, I was equally as guilty as Osama bin Laden. And if that offends your sensibilities, then you don't understand the holiness of God. We are all equally guilty before we come to Christ, but the blood of Christ is also equally applied. So it doesn't matter how much you've sinned in the past, it is finished and that blood covers it. The sacrificial work of Christ on the cross covers the sin, no matter how great the sin was. The holiness of God as revealed in the law became the test of man's thoughts, words, actions, and anything that failed to conform to the revealed holiness of God was considered sin. So the, the first reason was to reveal the holiness of God, and the second is that we might look upon ourselves, we might look in that mirror and realize that we weren't holy. Now, we are holy now, we're holy positionally, we may be unholy experientially from time to time, we are unholy experientially from time to time, but positionally we are holy. That's the second reason for the law. The third purpose of the law, which is related to, the, to number two, was to reveal the standard of holiness required of those in fellowship with God, with a holy God. If we want to walk in fellowship with a holy God, then what is the standard? How is that done? Israel had been redeemed 
as a nation. They were redeemed in order to enjoy fellowship with God, just like we were saved. Not to say, thanks for our salvation, goodbye God, I'll see you in, in eternity. I know there's nothing I can do to lose it. I don't intend to serve you for one minute. That's an absurdity. We were saved in order to serve him. We were saved in order to walk in fellowship with him. And the third purpose of the law was to show the Israelites how that could be accomplished. A fourth purpose of the law is stated by Paul in Galatians 3.24. Therefore the law was our schoolmaster to lead us unto Christ. Now this word schoolmaster refers actually to a slave that was selected by a father whose responsibility was to supervise all the activities of their child. A rich Greek or a rich Roman, particularly in, in Paul's case, this would be uh, Romans probably living in a Greek culture, they would, have, they would have assigned one of their slaves to take care of, for example, their 10-year-old son or their 9-year-old son, and that slave would be with that son morning till night instructing him. Now, we would do that ourselves. I don't want someone else instructing my kids. I'd prefer to, to do that on my own, but they turned it over to a slave and and that slave was 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 charged with getting that young man from immaturity to maturity and so paul says that the mosaic law was like that slave was like that schoolmaster who had the charge of getting the nation israel from a state of immaturity to a state of maturity and that's exactly what the mosaic law did the fifth purpose of the law is that it was given to be the unifying principle that made possible the establishment of the nation exodus 19 5 through 8 read now therefore if you will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant then you shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people for all the earth is mine and you shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation these were these are the words which you shall speak unto the children of Israel. And Moses came and called for the elders of the people and laid before their faces all these words which the Lord commanded him. And all the people gathered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. The Mosaic Law was given to make Israel a peculiar people unto her neighbors. In the seventh place, the law was given to a redeemed people to make provision for forgiveness of sins and restoration to fellowship. This is closely related to number three. In Leviticus 1 through 7, Leviticus is a book on holiness. I hate to have you suffer. <laughs> That's okay. Leviticus was a book on holiness, particularly chapters 1 through 7 stress this. And in these chapters, we find out what it took for an Israelite to be restored to fellowship with God. In the New Testament, we, we understand that we don't have to bring sacrifices. They had to bring a sacrifice and confess because Jesus Christ had not yet come. We don't have to bring the sacrifice because the sacrifice has already been made. What's left for us is simply confession of our sin. In the eighth place, it was given, the law was given to make provision for a redeemed people to worship. A redeemed people should be a worshiping people. And people who walk in fellowship with God will worship the God with whom they enjoy fellowship. Now, not everybody's going to walk in fellowship, but those who are walking in fellowship will worship. And that's what we're designed to do. In the ninth place, it, was, it provided a test as to whether one was in the kingdom or the theocracy over which God ruled. 
it lets you know the law became that which revealed whether man was rightly related to God or not. You can measure your salvation against the Mosaic law. And finally, it became clear from the New Testament that the law was given ultimately to reveal Jesus Christ. The great truths concerning the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ are woven throughout the Mosaic law, and the law was given in order that it might prepare the nation for the coming Messiah, for the coming Redeemer King. So those are ten, and I've mentioned them very briefly, but you have them there with you. You can review them again. Those are ten purposes that have been identified in Scripture for the Mosaic Law. Now let's go back to our passage now, and maybe we can see which purpose or purposes Paul is mentioning in our passage tonight. Paul says, For we know that the law is good, kalos, it's, it's lovely, it's, it's effective, if one uses it lawfully. The law is profitable if one used it properly and according to its original intention. Here, the term goodness is related to being used properly, that is, uh, treated as law, being intended for the lawless. Now, this is, this is primarily number two in, the, in, in our purposes. It was to expose sin. The Mosaic Law was a mirror, and it held up to these sins that we're about to mention, and showed the exceeding sinfulness of those. If God is holy, and and that's purpose number one, if God is held up as holy, and then we put these things up up against that, we should be able to see that we have a great need, shouldn't we? But we know that the law is good if if one uses it lawfully, realizing the fact that the law is not made for a righteous man. Now, Paul is specifically here talking about it was given to reveal the holiness of God, and it was given to reveal or expose the sinfulness of man. First two purposes. That's what he's referring to in our passage tonight. The exposing of that which is contrary to the holiness of God. Now, here's a list. I don't think anybody's going to argue with the list, but but let's look at it. There's a, a general category of disobedience. First, lawless people, and second, rebellious people. These, these characteristics, these evil characteristics come in couplets. Lawless people refuse to recognize law. There are people like that today. They said, I know that there's a standard against speeding, but I'm going to speed. I know there's a standard against stealing, but I'm going to steal. I know that, I know that, that society, these, I'm sorry, saying for unbelievers, society says that I shouldn't murder somebody, but I'm going to murder them. And it's all due to selfishness. It's all due to pride. It's all due to saying I'm more important than that person. So their life doesn't mean as much as my life. I'm going to take it if I want to take it. Rebellious individuals refuse to obey laws. Now, the next sins that are mentioned are violations of the first through the third commandments. Realizing again that the law was not made for righteous men, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, first couplet, the ungodly and sinners. Ungodly men and women have no regard for God. That's what that word means. God's not on their radar. He's not a priority for them. They're on their radar. The most important person in their life is them. Jesus Christ is not first, second, third, or fourth, or fifteenth. He's way down on the list, and they are. Uh, that's why the scriptures call them ungodly. Sinners is a general uh, term that means living in opposition to God. The next couplet are, has to do with impurity, unholy, and profane. Unholy people are those who live lives that are impure. Profane people treat sacred things as though they were common things. Now, the second group here that's mentioned 
in verses, last half of verse 9 through verse 10, provides examples of individuals who break the fifth through the ninth commandments of the Mosaic Law, the Decalogue. And these are sins arrayed against society, the violent. And we see, we see um, how does the New American Standard put it? Uh, those who kill their fathers or mothers. Actually, more specifically, it's the text says father strikers or mother strikers. They have no reverence or respect for their own parents, violation of the Mosaic Law. They have no reverence or respect for their own parents. And you don't have to go as far as what was it, the Menendez brothers that so brutally murdered their parents. You know, there's an aspect of the Mosaic Law that says if you, if you strike your dad, you're in big trouble. If you curse your parents, you're in big trouble. See, God didn't get, there was a certain divinely ordained order, and God didn't put up with it when you got outside that. A rebellious teenager could be stoned. I don't know of anything in the Talmud or the Mishnah that says that ever happened, but that was part of the Mosaic Law. That certainly was part of it. But then it gets a little stronger in the next part, and that says uh, the, the term is murderers. Murderers kill people deliberately. That's not uh, war. Thou shalt not kill refers to murder. That's the Sixth Commandment. There are immoral uh, arguments against immorality. Immoral men deal perversely with people of the opposite sex, which is a violation of the Seventh Commandment. Homosexuals is pretty self-explanatory. They're people that abuse their own sex, which is, again, a, a violation of the Seventh Commandment. The last couplet has to do with deceitful things. Kidnappers. Um, kidnappers, liars, and perjurers. Kidnappers is one category. Liars and perjurers is, is two words, but it's one category. Kidnappers literally steal and sell other people. The original term probably meant one who was a, a slave trader. But kidnappers today can, can kidnap and then hold for ransom. Not too different, really. You steal someone in order to give them back. Someone's got to pay a price to you. Uh, that's a, a horrible and a heinous, a very, very heinous crime. And, um, and it is duly punished in the Mosaic Law and in our society as well. It is uh, punished very severely as it should be. Um, I can't imagine those parents who have their children kidnapped. Uh, what, a, what, a, what a great burden that is. What a horrible thing to do uh, to a parent. Um, just a, as a side note, I talked to Pete Steigerwald recently, and uh, uh, they've never found his grandson. I talked to Pete Steigerwald's daughter, and um, she has a or daughter-in-law, his daughter-in-law, and she has a, an incredible, incredible attitude about it. She's a Christian woman. She knows that uh, her son is in heaven with the Lord. And in fact, uh, the brother of that young man it w may very likely uh, start attending Pine Valley in the, in the uh, whatever the next semester is going to be. I lost which season this is. Uh, in the fall. <laughs> yeah, in the, in the fall he may very well come, so I hope that we welcome him warmly if, if he does choose. He's a college student here in town. But what a horrible thing, you know, to have someone stolen away from you like that. And so you can see that that certainly doesn't match up with the holiness of God. If we were to look at kidnapping in the mirror of the holiness of God, I think any of us would be able to see that doesn't match up. And then finally, liars and perjurers. They bear false witness. I heard of a, a case today. I'm not going to get specific with it. It's not, it's not 
appropriate to do that, where it would certainly appear as though a church board had lied to to um, to a member of the congregation in a, in a very very serious way. Uh, there's no place for that. You know, just got to be upfront with people. Now people may not like what you say, but I think people would rather you tell them the truth and then not like it then you just you lie to them. Lying is not consistent with the holy character of God. And, and all these things should be fairly self-evident. Now, how might that apply in our dispensation, since, since we're not under the Mosaic Law? But New Testament teaching doesn't, doesn't mean that the Mosaic Law was bad. We learn a great deal about God from studying the Mosaic Law. Did you realize that? When Paul says all scriptures God breathed, you know the scripture he was speaking about at the time in context? He's speaking about the law. It was profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Do you see now how I might say a statement like that? Because if we have the holiness of God held up to us in the mirror of the law, we can be instructed in righteous behavior by understanding even Old Testament revelation. Sometimes in the Bible church movement, in the Protestant evangelicalism, we just eliminate the Old Testament and we don't think that that's important at all. It's very important. It is profitable. All scripture is God-breathed, and it's certainly profitable. So we see by this category that um, some of the folks that um, that were teaching in Ephesus were not teaching with this kind of purpose of the Mosaic Law in mind. They brought up the Mosaic Law, but instead of holding it up for these ten purposes that we brought up tonight, particularly for Numbers 1 and 2 in this context, instead of doing that, they were taking, they were taking what they considered to be, uh, well, I consider to be trivialities, and Paul did, trivialities out of that, and instead of discussing things that are important like the holiness of God, they would, they would make entire doctrines out of genealogies. Now, this doesn't mean that the genealogies are unimportant. They, they're there for a reason. They show that the line of Christ, how the line of Christ came, that the Abrahamic promise was going to be fulfilled exactly how he said it was. But apparently the people in Paul's time had taken that and blown it way out of the proportion of the meaning that it was originally supposed to have. Paul says, don't do that. So, to summarize, not just these verses tonight, verses 8 through 11, but verses 3 through 11, this entire first section that we have tonight. When a person teaches the scriptures, he should distinguish speculation that goes beyond what God has revealed from the teaching of God's word. Second, love should be the primary motive. Third, the teacher should present a portion of scripture considering the purpose for which God intended it. A good expositor will preach the message of a passage, will we'll, we'll digest a passage, and be able to tell you in a sentence or two what that passage is about. And the rest, the rest of the exposition should revolve around that. Any Bible class should have what in seminaries is called a central proposition or a sermon proposition to that sermon that reflects the central proposition from the passage. So we should present those, no matter what level you're teaching, whether it's adults in a class like this or whether it's 12-year-olds or high schoolers or as far down as we can go that they can understand the word, you should present the meaning that God had intended from that passage. And sometimes we, we don't do that. 
Sometimes, you know, for example, someone might could take a passage like this and say, for some men straying from these things have turned aside to fruitless uh, discussion and then have an in, entire uh, sermon on the difference between men and women because the word men was used in the passage. You see, that, that's not preaching the message. The message involves something that's, that's a little uh, broader and a little more meaningful than that. So again, when a, person teaches, when a person teaches the Scriptures, he should distinguish speculation that goes beyond what God has revealed from the teaching of God's Word. Myths and endless genealogies. It went beyond what had been taught. Second, love should be the primary objective. And third, the teacher should present a portion of Scripture considering the purpose for which God intended it, or the meaning of the passage. Knowledge of the letter is not enough. A teacher should communicate the spirit of the divine author, the Holy Spirit, as a class is taught.